Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host. We come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of Another Week Ends. But first, I had the pleasure this week of sitting down and talking with Stephanie Butnick. Stephanie is the deputy editor at Tablet Magazine and co-host of the wildly popular podcast, Unorthodox, which if you've listened to the show, you know I am a big fan of Indeed. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Stephanie as much as I did. I give you Stephanie Butnick. Stephanie Butnick, welcome to the Mockingcast. We have saved the best for last. This is the trifecta. In Christian terms, we could call it Trinitarian. Uh, I like that. We've had the third and most important member now of the unorthodox trinity on I was, the Mockingcast. I just assumed you hated women, so I wasn't going to be on it. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely misogynist, but... <laughs> It's like it's like misogyny light. Exactly. It's exactly. You just like figured I was busy. Exactly. You're very busy. No, I weren't. I'm intimidated. Like Mark and Liel are are not. Yeah, they're they're like jokers. They're, exactly, and they're just they're old school and not hip. Yeah. So you are a writer, a mag. You work at Tablet Magazine, and you are host co-host of Unorthodox, which we have. It's funny because I got a Facebook message from some, one of our listeners who I'm friends with, and. I, t- I said, hey, I'm going to have Stephanie Butnick on. He said, tell her I'm a genuine fan. And then he said, oh, it was autocorrect. I meant Gentile fan. <laughs> so just, I, I much prefer that because genuine fans, I'm like, why? But Gentile fans, I'm like, that is what we want. You're right. You're, 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 you're increasing the market. But I, I, there's not a person that I've recommended unorthodox to that has not become a regular listener. And I say this all the time in our podcast. It is one of the only podcasts. It might be the only podcast that I listen to on the day it comes out. That's like so it's nice. sort of part of my routine. Uh, You're like it. one of our biggest proselytizers. Cause like, you know, that's what Christians, make, which that's makes what Christians sense. Yeah. Like for. you're much better at it. We proselytize. Yeah. Like we're not that great at marketing. Cause we're like, Oh, listen, don't listen. Like we don't, we don't have that thing down yet. You know, like as Jews. No, you remarked like a couple of weeks ago, I forget what holiday it was, but you were saying that you didn't do anything observant because you're like, I, I work at tablet and it's like, I just live in, in this Jewish like reality every day. It's, I mean, it's interesting. And I imagine you probably have a somewhat similar experience though. Obviously, you know, you're way, way committed <laughs> to what you do. For me, I go, we go to work and, you know, like for four months before the high holidays in the fall, we're working on coverage. What are we going to do? What are good stories? You know, like what's a different apple and honey recipe that's not completely boring. So it's so funny because by the time the day comes, I'm just like, oh, I'm spent. I've, I've been thinking, you know, both practically and also some, in some larger sense, probably spiritually about this day. And now it's here. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to go to temple. <laughs> this is my day <laughs> off. Like, this is when I don't have to work. Like, I thought about this more than most rabbis. Yeah. And so I think that's very weird for people to hear. And, it, and I don't mean to sound, you know, sacrilegious or, or overly secular, but when you, it's, it's also hard, you know, a lot of the times my sister will ask me if I want to, you know, go see this new Israeli documentary over a weekend. And I'm just like, oh no, I don't do that in my off hours. 
I, like, I, gave I'm like, the, I literally yeah, gave it the office. I, I joke that I'm like vaguely anti-Semitic on the weekends, which is not true. But like, you know, I don't want – it's it's hard for me because I because what I do is so tied to my religion, it's so weird to do it not at work. So it's almost like this like performative professional Judaism that I do now. And that's probably like my own neuroses. That's like for me and my therapist to work out. That's like not tablet's fault or anyone's fault. But it is so funny when you're immersed in this and you're thinking about these concepts. And now with the podcast especially – you know, now there's like a dedicated time each week where we really, really deal with, I think, Jewish issues and Jewish news and stuff like that. It's so funny to me because what for most of the people I know who are, you know, secular bagel, bagel Jews, which is what Liel condescendingly calls us, who, you know, people who identify with Judaism, but are more like cultural and don't necessarily, I mean, I'm 29, I, I can't afford synagogue dues and I'm not going to pay them. So like, they're, they aren't going to temple necessarily. There's dues. That's such a great. I like that's something Protestants need to get paid. The dues, like they, I mean, it's, that's yeah. amazing. They but, you charge but, dues. That's it's, great. Yeah, it's insane. But so for those people, when they like go home on the high holidays or they go to their parents' synagogue, it's these are these these breaks for them, right? Like these are these are when these are the days, the six days a year that they engage with Judaism. But for me, I'm like I'm sort of the opposite, and I don't mean to sound flip about it, you know, flippant or anything. Um, because like, I think if I didn't love, I mean, I love what I do. And if I didn't genuinely want to engage with Judaism um, on a daily basis, I wouldn't be there. But it is funny to me when the, when the conventional time to like express your Judaism comes, you know, once every few months for a holiday, I'm just like, oh, no, I, I'm done. What are synagogue dues? Like, I mean, when you say you can't afford that, what is that? Like, is it like country club? Well, I mean, what, what are and what do you get? If you pay your dues, what do you get? So Chip, what used to happen before, you know, like Jewish communal life has has somewhat fizzled or completely dissolved over the last 20 years. Because but what you did was you, you you know, maybe you get married, you'd move to the to a town, to a suburb, start, you know, you'd want to have kids. So you join the temple. That's how you meet people. That's how you, you know, sort of like get involved in the community. And then you might also join, you know, like a Jewish federation that was near you and get involved um, in sort of like more philanthropy. That sounds so now, Star Trek. We're joining the Federation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's actually the Jewish Federation of North America, which sounds like it does sound like it should be like on a take place, place on a spaceship somewhere. But so then, you know, your kids would go to nursery school there. Those would be sort of your friends. You do events there. But because there's I guess there's been more there's so many more synagogues now. Right. And and, and the costs are actually prohibitive for, for younger people. Obviously, everything that happened, you know, to my generation in the past 10 years financially, like it's actually different, right? Like people aren't getting married as young and aren't necessarily moving out to the suburbs, aren't necessarily thinking about like what school their kids are going to. There's these, these different needs. And so what the synagogues used to do was basically like, there'd always be a new generation of people because people would have kids and then their kids would join and, and they could keep sustaining themselves. But what's happening with millennials, these like um, the coveted unaffiliated generation, which everyone's freaking out about, but everyone's trying to get them and say like, how can we attract them to our Jewish programming. And no one knows like how to tap into that yet. But so no one actually, like I, the idea for me of like joining a synagogue, why would I do that? I can just, you know, I could stream services on my computer on Yom Kippur. So there's a real synagogue crisis that's happening now. Um, and the, but the dues, so basically what you would used to do was you pay the dues and the dues would support the synagogue and support, you know, the staff and the maintenance and the facility. But like now I think a lot of synagogues have either started like, you know, renting out space to other types of communities um, or using like multi-purpose space instead of having a synagogue. 
It's really crazy. So if you're, you live in, in New York, I mean, you're in Brooklyn, Manhattan. Where, I'm where, in Manhattan. You're in Manhattan. So what are dues like? I mean, what are dues going to cost if, if I'm, if I'm a Jew in Manhattan and I got to pay my dues and what are we talking like a month? I have no idea, honestly, because that's how far I am from thinking about it. I would imagine it's like a few grand a year, I think. I mean, it depends. A year. Wow. I think it's, if you want to go to like a funky Brooklyn synagogue that's like doing their own thing, probably less than going to like, you know, these synagogues on the Upper East Side, these sort of like vaunted, beautiful places. If you want to deal with like less pristine bathrooms and things like yeah. that, you could slum it in front of the Brooklyn synagogue. And I mean, I think there, there are younger groups that meet in space, like that they don't, that aren't, they don't have a, a building. So basically it's, it's mostly building maintenance. I feel like our, like our synagogue costs, but you know, what's interesting. I'm getting married in September and we were t- trying to talk to, you know, I obviously, because of this sort of whole thing that I've just relayed, like, you know, my parents moved from the town that I grew up in and never rejoined a temple because there was no real reason to, I mean, they didn't, they didn't find a place. There was no, like the community wasn't there basically. And they, and they, this is also the advent of like, you can do basically whatever you want for the hot holidays these days. So I didn't have a rabbi and I, you know, didn't have a close, and, and it's, I sort of thought, if anyone can find a rabbi, it, it should be me. Yeah, I would. Th- I would think. I would think you're a big get for a wedding. I mean, but, I think people would be. You could interview like a celebrity apprentice. Well, someone we were looking at cantors and and a cantor at a, a synagogue in a well-known synagogue in Manhattan who seemed really great. We emailed with her, and she's like, "Okay, just so you know, our congregation like it's some carefully worded thing that basically says my job is to serve the congregation, and you know, I can't really do this for people who aren't in the converse- congregation. So if you want." You guys can get on the wait list to join the synagogue and I can do your wedding even while you're still on the wait list. And I was just like, wait, so now I have to sign up for a, like a, a fancy synagogue to just get you to do my wedding. It's really, really crazy. Wow. I mean, that's, yeah, I, I did a wedding for a couple, like, like a, two years ago. And it, this is, I mean, it's funny because it's a local church that they went to and the, they were going to cost charge like over a thousand bucks just to have the service there for like an hour. Oh my and they were like, I mean, and, and, and this person used to go to that church as a kid. And all that I can remember about that church now, every time I hear its name, is that that's how much they charge somebody. I'm like, you know, I, it's terrible, but that I can't stop thinking about that. I mean, it's this weird, like, mercenary aspect of organized religion, right? Like, you need money to support these services, right? Like, you, I, I don't know, I'm curious about your perspective because I know churches have a much more welcoming vibe. Like, come in, no one's like charging you at the door. Whereas temples, I mean, it probably goes into like bad stereotypes about Jews and money too. So it's like not even good. <laughs> like we're perpetuating them. Yeah, I think churches are, I think the difference is more like the stereotype would be like they're judgier. Like people are kind of, uh, or, or or I think the other thing is if you're a younger person for most churches, most traditional churches, they just like swamp you. Like, will you join tomorrow? Will you be in this committee? You, you know, because they're just like, oh my God, there are young people. Like, but the nuns, like the rise in the unaffiliated has not like, there's not like a corresponding rise in atheism. Like atheism, like there still aren't that many atheists in America, which creates an interesting religious market, right? Because you have all these people that are not necessarily connected to institutional religion, but they're not perennial skeptics. They're not all like Bill Maher, types, you know, conscious. Well, they're not thinking about it, right. right? Like, I think it's it's millennials, who I can speak as a millennial, are lazy, right? And like, they don't want to, in a lot of ways, engage in the tough questions that to be an atheist, you have to. Like, to be an atheist, you have to know a lot about religion. To be a nun, I mean, to, you know, or, uh, an N-O-N-E, you just have to sort of be like, eh, I'm not interested. And so I think that something weird is happening where, where at least in the Jewish community, there are now all these initiatives to, like, 
get millennials to do Shabbat dinners that are like fun and hip. But but because it's because there are young people who are, you know, you go to college and, and I imagine this is corresponding across religious lines. You go to college, okay, you go to your Hillel, you go to your campus center, whatever, whenever you want to go. And then you move to a, to a, pl- a new place and you actually have to find a new identity, right? Like you have to figure out how, okay, what are the things that I did growing up that I want to, con- you know, want to continue with? What are things I never did that I want to start um, bringing into my life? So I feel like for, Jew- for young Jews, Shabbat dinner has become like a very palatable thing. Like, oh, I can do a Friday night dinner. I love the idea of turning off my phone. So now people are trying to sort of like capitalize on, okay, this is this cool-ish thing. You know, everyone has to have dinner on Friday night and here you can do it with your friends. So it's like trying to find the ways in which you can, it's almost like make spirituality appealing to young people. Isn't the rub on that, like, yeah, I think Stanley Harawas, the ethicist at Duke theologian. Oh, this is like my grad school day. Oh yeah, you went to Duke, right? Yeah, but Harawas was like all over my grad, uh, grad school syllabus. He's his like. He, have you ever heard him speak? Not in person. He's like, I'm just, I, I'm just like a Mason from <laughs> Texas. I mean, he's got this really shrill like. I mean, he's, he, I'm just a son of a bricklayer from. I mean, he's like crazy. But he says, you know, the thing about traditions is when you're really a, embedded in a tradition, you feel like you didn't choose it; it chose you. Like, and so I wonder, like, if as we take a kind of, is there something that that is less compelling? I wonder if it feels cafeteria style. Like, like, is there, is, I wonder, like, for it to take, does it have to feel like something that shows you in a way? Like, do you As opposed to, to like, here's a thing I do once a week because it works for my schedule. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the fundamental question people are facing right now. And the other, the, uh, the other thing that's happening right now is these same young people who, you know, maybe don't feel like going to church. Oh, like, oh, I went to mass growing up. Like, like, I had friends who, who in college were like, oh, I'm never going to mass again. I'm, I'm in college now. Like, that, that means not living at home. Not, that means not yeah, I graduated parents, from church. <laughs> yeah, they're like, I'm done. And a lot of people, you know, like when they get bar bat mitzvah, they're sort of like, oh, I'm done. I'm done. And, and there's no understanding that that actually is supposed to be like the beginning of your Jewish identity as an adult, as opposed to the end of Hebrew school, which for many American Jews it is. But so... At the same time, what's fascinating about these group of people is, so, you know, if we want to, I don't really need to talk about the current political landscape, but, but I have to imagine there's going to be some rise in these young people who have known, you know, pretty, pretty much like are now for the first time sort of questioning their beliefs and, and becoming more active and different, you know, politically and, and, and getting more engaged. I have to imagine there's like a spiritual correlation where churches and temples and will, will there will be some sort of rise. It has to be, Right. You know, one thing I think I've learned from Jewish friends and colleagues it, that I think Christians could learn from is I think there's a sort of distinction between believing and belonging. And I think in a lot of branches of Christianity, those two things are sometimes fused together so that if for a season you're not in a season of belief, you're sort of you're in a season of existential angst and doubt, then you feel like you don't belong anymore. So mm-hmm. there's something my Jewish friends that, that have this sense of like, well, spiritually, religious, my beliefs can kind of be all over the map, but I know where home is and I have the sense of belonging. And I think that opens up some space to, to be like more existentially honest uh, and, and, and to be patient with your ups and downs uh, as opposed to, I think there's a pressure for Christians that it, it, it's sort of, you guys talked about this on Orthodox. What's the, is there a five second rule? Like if you're an evangelical Protestant <laughs> and, and, and you start doubting, is it a five minute rule? What if you get hit by the bus in your moment of doubt? Like when, you know, mm-hmm. the, I mean, I think that's a torturous kind of thing um, that I think 
it's one thing I think we could learn. Well, it's funny because like the idea of a lapsed Catholic, I don't know a Jewish equivalent. Like I've never, but it's a, it's just a Christian term to me, like a lapsed something like, like something you, you like change your belief and then you're gone. So I think, but I think what, what it is in Judaism is like, it's rooted in just like eons of persecution. I think not to bring everything back to the Holocaust and like the pogroms, but I think there's something like deeply inherent. That's why culturally Jewish, I think is a viable spiritual identity because it is rooted in the sense of like, you know, we, we sort of joke about this on the podcast, but it's like when they're coming for you, like, doesn't matter. You're on that list. You know, like if you're Jewish, you're on that list. It doesn't matter what you believe. So I think some, like in some weird way that has actually translated into like, I can be an atheist and also a Jew. Like there's this really, really like, there's a flexibility and identity because I think everyone deep down knows like, they're <laughs> like, I, I'm going to, I got to get a bag packed anyway. So yeah, yeah like, you don't, you don't, like you'll be defined regardless. Like you don't yeah, get the luxury like of someone else will define me by yeah. that for sure. Some evil person. You just, you guys did a podcast recently where it was, it was not a Thursday podcast. It was kind of a unique storytelling podcast. And you talked about your, you are the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're, and you talked about visiting one of the camps in Europe and people you talked about kind of almost being offended that people were like, was well, this extra hard for you as a survivor? Can you talk a little bit about like that story? Yeah. I mean, so basically in terminology, there's like you're a Holocaust survivor. And then you're, uh, if you're a child of survivors, you're second generation. And then, so I would be third generation. So there's this weird thing that happens where it sort of like gets lopped onto your identity. Like you're a third generation survivor. To me, that term is very weird because I don't think I've personally survived anything difficult. You know, like I, it's, it's just a weird label. And people are like, you know, as a third generation, like people sort of, it's, it's the kind of thing that lends itself to distortion, I think. So, so I've always sort of had a weird relationship with that term. I mean, obviously I'm really Holocaust remembrance and commemoration is really important to me. Actual, you know, acts of it, not just like governmental notices every once a year, but, um, so yeah, we, I was on a fellowship in graduate school through the Auschwitz Jewish Center, which is this really amazing, amazing, I, I, I wish I could plug it more because it's, it's based in Auschwitz in Poland. And, it, and their mission is basically to say like, the place where Auschwitz is, is a, t- is a town. Like it, it's called, Auschwitz is the German translation of Auschwitz, which is what it was called um, by the Jews who lived there. And there were Jews that lived there for centuries. And so the idea of like, so I know this is not what you asked me at all, but the idea of like saying Auschwitz is like in a exists outside of time and space. And it's just Mm. like this incarnation of evil is wrong. It was a place, it was a town that became this awful thing and people still live there. Anyway, so while I was there, um, and it's also run by like a bunch of non-Jewish Poles who just like have devoted their lives to to like this very nuanced distinction of educating people about. Anyway, so we went to the camps and this kid came up to me and he was really like the like, he was that like guy in your MFA, but guy in your like grad school religion program who always like told you how much more he knew. Um, <laughs> so he was like, Oh, this must like this, he, this must be really hard for you. And I was just like, what do you mean? And he's like, Oh, you know, like, cause your grandparents. And I was just kind of like, screw you. Like this is, if this isn't hard for you to go to a concentration camp, there's something wrong with you. Like, if this isn't just like a harrowing universal experience of just like what happens when persecution becomes so un, like wildly unchecked. Um, to me, I was just, I was just so startled by this idea that like I would be put in a special category because like I said, like I don't consider myself as like, you know, it's like the, um, at the, at the Passover Seder each year, you say like, you know, we are all supposed to consider ourselves as having 
come personally from Egypt, you know, personally been part of the Exodus and um, personally fled slavery in Egypt, which is another thing that I've always sort of been like, okay, I mean, I can conceptually try to do that, but I think it's important to acknowledge like things are so different right now. But so yeah, that, 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 that story stuck out to me because this idea, I mean, it was sort of a subtle jab at Jared Kushner, um, who has used his grandparents' Holocaust experience. They were, you know, partisans. They were part of, they were part of the Bielski brigade, um, which the movie Defiance is based on. And he sort of said like, you know, during the campaign, he said, ah, Trump's not anti-Semitic. I, you know, like I know anti-Semitism. My grandparents were in the Holocaust. And I was just like, that is a dirty move because if, if that means that you can excuse behavior, like because of your connection to this thing, I don't know. It just seemed very problematic to me. It's just like the limits of identity politics. I mean, where on one level, like it, it it's created space for people to recognize, Hey, not every, not everybody's the same. Like they're, there's very, you know, a variety of human experience and especially for marginalized people. And yet there is really one human story, right? Love, friendship, betrayal, hope, you know, so on some level, like it sounds like you were sort of pigeonholed. Uh, it's like oversensitized. So like, no, this is a universal human story. Like we all ought to see, feel this evil. Like it's not, I don't have a market, a corner on uh, being horrified by this. Yeah. I mean, and then of course, you know, at the end of that story, it's like, I was, I was deeply upset that day and just sort of like broke down. And I don't know why that, you know, that was for a number of reasons, probably like personal stuff too, but it was, it's just fascinating to me because I can also hold that idea that, that the Holocaust is so universal, a, a, just a travesty, but also can then keep in my mind at the same time, the fact that it was direct against Jews, you know, like sort of going back to what we talked about earlier. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I feel like now there are so many people, it, it, I guess I don't, I don't want to, you know, like do the ladder of suffering and who, who's, who's where, but to me, I think American Jews today or American Jews in, you know, the 21st century have a, have a pretty good positioning. I mean, they're pretty, things are fine, you know, like obviously things have, you know, things, we could talk about like what's going on, what's going to happen. But I think there are so many groups that are, it's not like having it worse, but it's just, it seems to me to be a Jew today who's obsessed with like, oh my God, I see anti-Semitism there. I see it there. It seems to be, to be missing the bigger picture of just like what else is going on here? Because like, it's not like another Holocaust is around the corner. Like we're not there. So I think there, and then there's also a way to be concerned about that Holocaust Remembrance Day statement, but also not panic. But like, you know, just to sort of hold all these things that like, it's very, things are uncertain right now and we don't know what's happening, but saying calm and seeing the bigger picture seems to me the only, only real route. Yeah. I mean, and humans don't do well with uncertainty, right? So we tend to sort of either minimize or, or dramatize. Or panic. Or, yeah. Right. I mean, it's sort of, yeah. I mean, it's like, cause we're, you know, we like certainty and we like a narrative that we can kind of control. And it's an unrelated question. Well, semi-related, I, you know, you guys, I mean, one of the great things about your show is that you're, it's such a great format. You kind of open up with news of the Jews and then you, you, you play around with some things. And like, I've seen, it's funny cause I listened to, before I, getting on this call with you I, earlier, I listened to the first episode because like, I wanted to, I remember when I saw it, I really liked the cover art when, it, when the podcast started and I just, it came up in new and noteworthy. And I was like, oh, and it sounded kind of NPR. It was fun. It was a, a little irreverent. It was like, and I just, I was a dick. I was like, this is great. I mean, I subscribed to this. But you know, you, one of the things you have is you have a Jewish guest uh, generally and a Gentile of the week. Now, Mark told me that originally there were people that were against the Gentile of the week. What I was think it? I was one of them. All right. Tell me why. Let's get into it. Tell me why. I think I was just like, ooh, this is touchy. Do people want to be like, is it awkward to tell people to come on as 
the Gentile of the week. It just seems like it's almost like how we don't talk about relig- you don't talk about religion and politics and whatever whatever the adage used to be. It seemed like such an awkward thing, but in in practice, it's our most popular. Th- I mean, it's the best segment of the show because, of course, Jewish guests are going to be on a Jewish podcast. Like that seems sort of and and you know Jewish writers promoting books. Like it's an obvious place for them to go. But the the Gentiles who first of all agree to be on the show and want to be on the show have a certain sense, not a sense of humor about it, but like. Can, can on, it, it takes a lot to like, you know, you came on the show and you were sort of like down to, you know, like you, you had fun with us. And, and I was honored. Time, I, like, I was like a best, best thing on my resume. I was like, I was Gentile of the week on Orthodox. I mean, I, I think a lot yeah. of guests like look at like a badge of honor. Like I was Yeah, Gentile it's so funny. Week. John Cleese, we had him on the show. He said he wanted to put that on his Twitter bio. He started cracking up when he found out he was going to be Gent. He was Gentile of the week. So I think it is something so funny to like, it's just so in your face that I think people really, really take to it. Um, it's funny because a lot of Jewish guests are like, we, you know, we introduce them, Mark will say, and, and our Jew of the week is blah, blah, blah. And they'll be like, wait, what? <laughs> because it's like being a, gen- being a Jew of the week, I think for a lot of people has like a weird connotation. Um, uh, whereas being a Gentile of the week is actually very funny to most people. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's such a, it's, it's, it, those have been, and, and, you know, we let the Gentile of the week ask a question and the questions we've gotten have just been really, really, really interesting. Sometimes they don't make it into the, the final cut, just the whole conversation was wide ranging, but it's sort of fascinating to hear questions. It's, it's the idea is ask us a question about Judaism. You've been afraid to ask someone or didn't have someone to ask. And what was your question? I think I asked, uh, well, my wife had a question. What was the, oh, what's, yeah. what's the most Jewish hors d'oeuvre in the Jewish cocktail? And I remember Lee, I was like, the, the Jewish cocktail is pastrami on rye. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think I, I asked about like the connection to Bible stories and traditions, like what, you know, that it seems like a lot of my f- Jewish friends, even who are observant, some of them like are, are not as into biblical narratives and stuff like that. Like it's not, it's not as that. And, and, and I thought you guys did great with my question. I mean, I, you guys, I thought were very candid and thoughtful. Is this what Mark said? He was like, you guys package them better. Like, like well, yeah, they're like, better stories you have. He's like, like you, know, you, you basically, you can be the death, resurrection of Jesus. The thing. He's <laughs> like, you kind of get that. He's like, you know, you got that one lens. And once you got that, you kind of, you know. Yeah. And we're like, and there was plots, from heaven in the desert and things were bad. It's like, yeah, we don't, we don't have the narrative, narrative uh, strength of that. But no, I think the questions have been really fascinating because it also pr- pushes us to think about like it, to answer on behalf of like, capital J Jews everywhere in the world, you know, is, is a funny thing. And it's like a real weightedness, but I feel like it's had, it's had me looking things up and trying to sort of have um, a semi coherent, intelligent explanation for them because, you know, some of them we sort of joke or joke about, but I don't know, it's been interesting. And that's where a lot of the differences, like the whole bagel Jew thing, like that's when our differing perspectives will come out because Leah will be like, how do you be a Jew? You read the, you read the Talmud. You know, and I'll be like, how do you be a Jew? You feel connected to your spirituality, maybe through food. I don't know. Like, so we've had, that's where sort of the interesting dynamic between us, I think, comes out. Has, I mean, you have, a, a, I mean, by any standard, like, I mean, you were, you were on the top 50 podcasts on Guardian. Right? Was it, Guardian. it was 50 or 100? Top 50, I thought it was. It was a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah and that was really exciting. My, my parents were really excited about that. Has that, how has that changed? Like, like, has it changed me? Yeah. Do, do you, I mean, because people, like, people know you now before you have any sense. It's different even than I think writing, right? Because I, when I first, I've met you guys before because I was on your show and I've done some editing work for years. Like, I, I mean, I felt like I already knew you before I met you. 
Like because of the nature of your show and the intimacy of the conversation. And I feel like I'm listening in on ongoing friendship. Like, is that a weird thing that people kind of know you? Well, to me, it's just funny that anyone listens because I'm just like, I don't even want to listen. I don't even want to be there. Like, why is anyone listening? But, you don't want to listen, really? No, I, I love listening, but I'm just like, it's so funny to me that, so I love hearing hearing from people who who do listen and who really like it. There are a few, there are sometimes like I answer the phone at tablet sometimes. And so people will call and be like, wait, who is this? And I'm like, Stephanie, they're like, I thought so. And I'm like, okay, now, <laughs> now you're getting, letting this go to my head. So like these sort of funny exchanges like that. And, you know, when we had, we had a live show in New York last month and that was our first pretty big, like local live show. Do you feel like, um, like, so one of the things I, I've blown away about, and I say this to a lot of people is that I think it, our, our podcast has evolved into a similar kind of thing, a hybrid kind of interview uh, talk show. Like the first segment is an interview. The second segment is kind of a round table where we talk about articles. Oh yeah. I mean, it's the attention. Christian. I don't exactly. It's a, right. Exactly. Exactly. It's, 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 it's the goyish version of, um, <laughs> I, but it, we, what amazes me about your show is that you do a three-on-one interview, which I think is almost impossible. I mean, Robin Quivers and Howard Stern have a two-on-one, but Robin is much more in the back seat in that. But a three-on-one, I mean, I just think that's difficult because how like you make you invite people into something that they're not a part of and that you are and yet you make them feel at home which i think is almost impossible i mean like cuz just because there's a pre-existing dynamic it's like a job interview or something mm-hmm. so how do you make the space for people to feel at home in a 3 on 1 interview like is it just cuz you know each other so well or it's interesting. I mean, this is sort of the thing, you know, we debrief amongst ourselves like every so often and sort of say like, hey, here's a note there and there and there. Um, one of the things that's come up recently is like, how do you do a three-on-one interview well? When And the thing that you didn't mention is that the person comes in with their own personality, right? So like there are really talkative people who can hold their own against, against three pretty like re- gregarious, loquacious people, right? Like, it's not exactly like Mark is like, <laughs> there's a lot of interrupting going on. So it's yeah, like a very yeah. specific type of conversation that you're just like sort of getting thrown into. Some people are more comfortable with that than other people. But I think even the people who are thrown by it, the, the hope is that they feel like they're in the conversation as much as we are, right? Like that they, that it's just like this, you, you know, it's temp services are over and everyone goes to like the kiddish and everyone's just like chit-chatting, trying to get the, get a word in edgewise. That's sort of the vibe I think we're going for. Like crowded deli, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it is, it is really hard. And, and, and for me, um, what's, this might be more than you asked for, but like at the beginning of the podcast, I think what I went through was like, I was like, okay, you know, there are these two guys, they're like m- older than I am. They're much more professionally accomplished than that. You know, they've been writing for years and years. They've written books. They know, they know what they're talking about. And so at the beginning, I had this real hesitation because I was just like, is what I have to say smart? Like, what if it's wrong that I think is not Stephanie, atypical? Stephanie, you're always smart. Oh, again, well, it took me a while to figure that out, but now I know. But I don't think that's an atypical experience for specifically like young women in a professional sure, environment. Sure. So I actually had to do this sort of like professional growth and, and, and to myself say, wait, you're probably funnier than these people for being on this. Like you have something to say too. And there's a reason that you were asked to be on the show basically. So I had to overcome my own internal, like Michigas, right? Like to say, to jump in. And, and, and if I listened to early podcasts, I really didn't talk a lot. Like it's really crazy. It was basically like a two point two and a half person podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how that stuff evolves, how like things take on a life of their own and, and you see like how the show grows and, and, and I think it's made the show much better because 
I, I don't even know what I would like. I think the idea during news of the Jews, we just all are interrupting each other constantly. And I think our talk are speaking equally. It's different when a guest is there. Cause we obviously like, you know, want to hear something, some of the things they have to say, um, or, you know, about whatever they're promoting or something, but it's been a kind of fascinating journey for me because I now feel like I'm a more assertive person and like I can be in a meeting and be more assertive. It's, it's hmm, had really hmm. interesting implications for me. So, okay. My, so I, am. Um... I never thought I would like inter- like I, interviewing people. I, I just, I mean, I didn't think I would not like it, but it's become something I, I think I've gotten decent at. And I really enjoy. I really, <laughs> I really enjoy it. Like it really. But I mean, one day we did this. Um, we did a, a, an interview that people really liked, uh, and I was kind of. I, I, my wife was listening to it as she was cooking dinner, and I was kind of listening and looking for her reactions because she's usually the person I want the first critique, you know, insight and critique yeah. from. And she could tell I wasn't like super jazzed about it but she really like she, she's like scott everybody doesn't want to have to be your best friend when they come on the podcast like it's okay you can just have a normal interview and it can be a good experience and then that's it like and i was like no everybody must like me do you feel that no like, yeah well like you came on our show and then we're all of our best friends so exactly. like i get I'm it trying. it should I'm happen trying. i mean for me i seek attention like i seek validation i think and and i want the people who, who come on the show to like me and to like us whereas like i don't think mark and leonis i mean there's I think I'm more conscious of like, is this person having fun? Are they, are we being nice to them? Are they going to come back? Like, are they going to say, tell their friends they had a fun time, which actually doesn't matter at all. Right. Like the point is to get a good conversation. And but, so- I actually, but I actually think that is important. Like, I feel like the best conversations people probably feel like it's like a good social interaction. Like they, like they were at a great party or at a great dinner invitation. I, I think there's yeah. something to that. Like, right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Mark gave me an, a, a very good note recently. He was basically like, you don't push back on guests. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't want them to not like me. <laughs> like I, I would, it would be hard for me to sort of say like, no, wait, <laughs> follow up on that. Or like, but you said this earlier, like that in my, isn't in my nature. And it's interesting to, to think that like, oh, maybe I should sort of be a little bit more not combative, but almost just less of just like a sounding board, you know? But it's interesting for you, you do one-on-one interviews. Like I, that to me is terrifying. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting that we don't, like, I generally, we, we don't ever have, like, adversarial conversations. I generally, like, if, if, if I thought it was going to be, it, Mark's so funny because I, you know, he works, I, I actually think, I joke, but I think I would have a neo-Nazi on if they were mannerly, if they were, like, I'm thinking, Yeah, but, I mean, he's a debater. Like, he wrote a whole memoir about high school debate. Like, he actually would thrive in that environment where, because he would say, like, explain this, explain, like, that's, that's what he does. If I, first of all, I'd be, like, really scared. Or what if I thought the neo-Nazi was like nice? And then I'd be like, wait, this changes everything. Um, <laughs> Maybe they're what if he was cute? What if he had that haircut? Like the neo-Nazi haircut? Like, I don't know. I think I anything love, could happen. I fell in love with a deplorable. That's my memoir. You know, like, yeah, What's yeah, a nice I, Jewish girl like you doing? At a... But it, it is an interesting thing, though, because what you do, right, it is, it is different than, I mean, I think it's different than a straight kind of interview traditional show. And I, I think that's part of what, is compelling about it. it's there is a very conversational back and forthness to it as opposed to just sort of a straight you know I, well i'll just ask you some questions and you talk about your book and then we're done you know what i mean there's i mean i i feel like that's what's compelling about po- certain podcasts right i mean w- when you feel the human dimension there like you feel the back and forth you feel the i thouness mm-hmm. and, and, well, and I that's why people I like, like that. it you know because we're in an yeah. i world a lot right sometimes it has to be you can't you can't, uh, like, you can't be everyone's best friend. And sometimes you need, you know, somebody to give you your subway pass or this or that. But like, 
most of us like to feel like subjects, not objects. Mm. And that's what humanizes us. And I mean, I, th- I feel like, I mean, I had a great experience like that when I was on your show. I felt, I felt very, I, it was great. I felt like known. I felt heard. I felt engaged. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's a real gift, I think, to guests and listeners. Now, one last question. I, yes. I came on and I brought, I brought whiskey from Bristol, Pennsylvania, and I brought pepperoni, pizza flavored goldfish. <gasps> those were so has good. Has anybody brought a gift that good? And I brought magazines too. Has anybody out there? Oh yeah, and like- I still have those. Okay, so the really first of all, it's only the Gentiles who bring food. <laughs> only. I, feel like I don't think there's like, been a single like this Jewish is like person. A subtle, almost anti-Semitic, like things. Like, it's only the Gentiles that bring food. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you for coming on the podcast. This is been, hey, thanks for finally having thanks me. Thanks for the trifecta. We made the trifecta again. We saved the best for last. Please, the Trinity. The Trinity. It is the Trinity. The 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 holiest of holy trinities. And I'm sorry I didn't bring anything this time. It's it was okay. On. You can ship it. It's yeah. Okay. All right. I'll make the. I'll put them in the oven now, and then I'll send them. They should be still warm by the time they Perfect. get to you. Thank you so much. Good day to both. David Zoll is here, Charlottesville, Virginia, the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird <coughs> Ministries, and Sarah Condon live on location. I've seen, it sounds like you're in a movie set, but you're just in your house. But you are on location in your house in Houston, Texas. I am in the guest room. Yeah. Mm. How are you guys doing? I'm doing well. I'm about to go out to Chicago to uh, do a retreat with a church out there. I'm excited about it. And uh, yeah, just sort of kind of blown away by some of the stuff that you that we're just talking about today. And it's been a productive week for Mockingbird. Yes, we have sent out that food and drink issue and been getting lots of sort of responses to it. It turns out it, it's remarkably accessible. I think people are really interested in food and drink yet it doesn't it doesn't require the kind of mental effort it takes to to pick up something about mental health so uh yeah and scott you put together that incredible uh you know special episode about food and drink if people haven't heard that they should definitely uh check it out i love the cold open by the way love it yeah it was fun it was a fun thing to do and sarah you're off to diocesan council I am. That sounds, sounds like some other like Star Wars, like the it Jedi does, Council, doesn't <laughs> like it? The it does. Council yes. meeting, convening. Yeah, Galveston, Texas, Diocese of Texas. So, um, yeah, we're we're both. You know, that's the that's the fun thing about being married to a priest and being a priest yourself is that when they have these events, um, it's it's kind of like a weekend getaway with you know two hundred of your best clergy friends. So, mm. yeah. Wow. That sounds. That sounds. It does. Like sounds like you get it. Well, is will there be will there be talks and lectures on the Protestant face of Anglicanism there? I, I doubt it very seriously. No, okay. I it's doubt just it. a buzz. Yeah. It's a buzz. I'm right hoping now. for next year though. I'm gonna it's a, it's put a bee in the bishop's bonnet about that. It's popular right now. The Episcopal Church. It's kind of, it's, 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 a, it's a groundswell uh, of energy and ideas that are circulating. Absolutely. Out there. So I just thought thought it would hit that t- diocese down there, but. All right. Well, that being said, let's just dig right into things. David, tell us how to become immortal. Well, this kind of the timing on this first article could not be more uncanny. Michelle Allison writing in the um, in the Atlantic had an article called "Eating Toward Immortality: Diet Culture Is Just Another Way of Dealing with the Fear of Death," and it's this 
longer um, essay that reads like a bit of a manifesto. It's kind of a strange tone for the Atlantic, and I kind of I loved it for reasons that will soon become clear. Um, she's really what she's taking is Ernst Becker's famous uh, denial of death book and talking about how where that um, intersects with our current. F- uh, food culture. And um, I'll just, I'm going to read to you from it. It says, when it comes to food, Ernst Becker said that humans, quote, quickly saw beyond mere physical nourishment and that the desire for more life, not just delaying death today, but clearing the bar of mortality entirely grew into an obsession with transforming the self into a perfected object that might achieve a sort of immortality. Diet culture and its variations, such as clean eating, are cultural structures we have built to attempt to transcend our animality. By creating and following diets, humans not only eat to stay alive, but they fit themselves into a cultural edifice that is larger and more permanent than their bodies. It is a sort of immortality ritual, and rituals must be performed socially. Clean eating rarely, if ever, occurs in secret. If you haven't evangelized about it, joined a movement around it, or been praised publicly for it, have you truly cleansed? Uh, If it weren't for the small chance of death lurking around every food choice and every dietary ideology, choosing what to eat from a crowded marketplace wouldn't be considered a dilemma. This is, by the way, why we we included that list, what would you eat if you weren't afraid. Uh, Instead, we would call it the omnivore's fun time at the supermarket rather than the omnivore's dilemma. And people wouldn't repost so many Facebook memes about the necessity of drinking a gallon of water daily or the magical properties of apple cider vinegar and coconut oil. Everyone would just be a little bit calmer about food. And then she goes in to sort of actually talk about the specific uh, figures at the head of kind of wellness and dieting. She says, the heroes of contemporary diet culture are wellness gurus who claim to have cured themselves of fatness, disease, and meaninglessness through the unimpeachable purity of cold-pressed vegetable juice. The image of a person you can relate to on a human level, smiling out at you from the screen, standing in a before and after shoulder to shoulder with their former lesser processed food eating self, is something uh, new altogether. Their creation myth and redemption, how they were lost but now are found, is undeniably compelling. Um, And then she gets back to Becker and talks about, according to Becker, there's two motives underlying almost all human behavior, the urge for heroism and the desire for atonement. At a Mm. fundamental level, people may feel a twinge guilty uh, for having a body, for taking up space, for having appetites that devour the living things around us. They may crave expiation of this guilt. And culture provides not only the means to achieve plentiful material comfort, but also ways to sacrifice part of that comfort to achieve redemption. Therefore, it's not enough for wellness gurus to simply amass the riches of health, beauty, and status. They must also deny themselves sugar, grains, and flesh. They must pay. These are people that could afford to eat cake should the bread run out, but they quit sugar. They're only eating twigs and moss now. And what more glamorous way to triumph over dirt and animality and death than eating twigs and moss? She concludes by saying the only common thread between competing dietary ideologies is the belief that by adhering to them, one can escape the human condition and become a purer, less animal kind of being. This is why arguments about diet get so vicious so quickly. You're talking about righteousness, in other words, in our terms. Mm -hmm. To eat without restriction, on the other hand, is to risk being unclean and to beat your own uncertain path. It is admitting your mortality, your limitations, and messiness as a biological creature while accepting the freedoms and pleasures of eating and taking responsibility for choosing them. There is no one true diet. Now, um, 
she is coming from a very positivistic uh, place, and there's a huge uh, denial that there is anything kind of uh, that, that that these realities about human drives and human uh, motivations point to anything larger. But it, um, what she she is describing the religion of food as it has come to be known and the operating moral moralism around it in really stunning terms. And I am reminded, of course, of Robert Capon, who really was the great theological advocate for food as pleasure and as um, abundance. And of course, he was known for saying that the last secret of the cult of nutrition, the mystery to be guarded at all cost, is that the implicit promise of immortality is bunk. The idol in the innermost sanctum doesn't just have no clothes. It isn't even there. Mm. A lot to take in. A lot to take Excellent. in. Excellent. I could not imagine feeling victorious over anything by eating twigs and moss. Like I, <laughs> I would just feel like I've lost. I've, I would feel like a loser at that point. Yeah. Uh, well, so I keep thinking about how um, people. Do, I mean, I totally agree. People do use food as like one more method of control in our lives to avoid thinking about death. But I keep thinking about in the process of people dying. Food is one of the first things that they give up. You know, we, we, when we enter into hospice, we often give up food, you know, for weeks before, before we give up anything else. Um, it's this thing to sort of um, be done with um, as we head towards death. And I, I also keep thinking about that, that ending part, which, which is, um, I don't know, it, I, it sort of feels idealistic, but I, I love the idealism because it's idealism of sort of, in our terms, being in the gospel. But this idea that you don't have the law of what you should eat on you on the one hand, which is sort of how sin functions, right? We don't have, we don't have this like law of um, how we can be moral and more moral people and self-improve and all these things. And yet at the same time, because I think a lot of people with food, especially, and I'm speaking such, from such a female vantage point here, but you know, once we throw that off, I often see women and I've done this myself where it's like, then we define our relationship with food in terms of like being bad, you know, like, oh, well, I'm going to have this chocolate cake because I'm being bad today, you know, and um, which is also how sin functions on some level. Like we're keep, you know, we, we keep, we keep uh, ourselves so tightly under the law that like, then when we just give it up, like, then we just, then we just go nuts um, instead of knowing that uh, uh, the ultimate sacrifice um of nourishment has been made on our behalf. So yeah, I thought there was so much here that was really, really, really good. Um, what do you think, Scott? It all takes you back to the Enuma Elish. I mean, yeah, it's everybody's bedside reading, but yeah, the Enuma Elish is like one of the Babylonian, it's like a <laughs> yes. sixth century, sixth century kind of creation myth. And in it, yeah. Mar- Marduk, after he slayed, I think, Tiamat and her lover Kanga or something, like the entrails kind of create the world accidentally. And then the gods are sort of, he kind of reshapes the world, which is the, the byproduct of carnage and divine violence. And then the gods, the gods are still a little restless, so he creates human beings to feed the gods. But really only kings and priests get to interact with the gods, and their purpose is to bring the fruits of human labor to, you know, to, before these unsatisfied, unruly gods. And it's interesting, because over against this, you have the Genesis creation narrative where the world is born out of gratuity and love and the first thing god does is feed human beings mm. it, but the gift of food reminds us ironically of our mortality like i mean i think humans were mortal before the fall i mean they would have died they could they were finite they, it, it shows that the immortality is not something by nature 
endowed to human being, but it's a gift and a grace. And and we would have needed to be redeemed even if we weren't reconciled. Like we would have needed to inherit uh, the imperishable. But it's funny, Alexander Schmemann, a book called For the Life of the World, which is one of the best, but it's a, it's a sort of summary of Eastern Orthodoxy for Western Christians. It's a great book. But he says, what's unique about human beings is we are meant to be the priests of creation. We're the only creatures that can bless God back for our food. Mm. No other creature can offer, eat Eucharistically, and right. actually offer a blessing back to God for the gift. And he thinks that, that what, what religion is, is attempting to eat apart from God. And so in, in, in our first parents choosing to carve out a space to eat on their own, they actually created religious life, which he thinks is like a problem, not a solution. So that's fascinating. All that, all, all that makes me think that there's a lot of, you know, everything you learned in, you know, in kindergarten, everything you learn, you learn from the Enuma Elish at some point. <laughs> yes. That's, that's words to live by themselves. As soon as you said it, I was like, is that what I think he's talking about? Yeah. All I can think about when I read this is the blessing that our children do, that they learned at the school they go to, which is also our church, um, because it's uh, it goes, uh, and they sing it, which I will not do, but... God, our Father, God, our Maker, once again, thank you for our blessings. Amen. And they sing it sort of like, you know, you sing each line two times. But I, I, I'm always struck by the the once againness of it, that it says it in the prayer, like once again, you know, we're here to thank you again for what you've blessed us with, with this food. So, hmm. yeah. Let's talk atheism. Let's. Yes. The, this is from The Outline and for, by um, a guy named Daniel Oberhaus. Reports that no one knows why atheists return to religion. And it's a very, you know, he kind of, he doesn't editorialize so much as com- uh, compile a bunch of social science about um, how scholars have studied the effects of converting from one religion to another or deconverting even, but no comparable research has been done on what makes atheists return to religion. And he uses the example of Zucker- Mark Zuckerberg, who is kind of s- no longer identifies as an atheist and sort of gotten interested in faith or spirituality. And, you know, the cynical would say it's because he's thinking about running for office of some kind. But um, we have a friend, our friend Aaron Zimmerman actually sat down with Mark Zuckerberg a couple of weeks ago and felt that... Uh, because he was interested in learning about not only Texas, but about uh, religious people and felt that it was, there was something sincere there, but that's totally beside the fact, um, beside the point. Uh, he refers to that Pew uh, analysis from 1978, I believe that talked about unchurched people. And then that, that happens oftentimes when people are young, but then they come like 80% of those who are unchurched go back to church later in life. But that really is, is almost tangential. Uh, he mentions that uh, four religious people reject religion for every non-religious person who converts to it, though even those categories are getting so messy with our current sort of spiritual but not religious um, uh, categorization and the just sort of default rejection of labels themselves. Um, 
he cites a 2010 study by Duke Psychology and Neuroscience Professor Aaron Kay, who found that government instability results in an increase in religious belief in, in individuals. You could say the same for sort of poverty, uh, anything that kind of strips away from where I'm sitting rather than th- th- things that strip away our other sort of forms of security uh, or our other buffers from our own need for something larger. Um Ben says he sort of um, theorizes a little bit using a 2002-12 study from University of Chicago uh, about age, and which followed a group of people from over 30 countries for nearly three decades and found that 43% of people over the age of 68 said they were certain that God exists, compared to only 23% of people under 27. And according to the study, most of this increasing belief in God occurs between the ages of 58 to 67. Now, some, again, the uh, young person's explanation would be that you're getting close to death and fear kicks in and all this stuff. The older person's uh, explanation would be that you've lived long enough to sort of have uh, some sense of what reality is and be disillusioned about your uh, your actual uh, ideology. Ideolo- um, idealism about yourself. Then then quote a guy here from here at UVA named uh, Matthew Hedstrom who's a religious studies professor here and talks about, uh, he kind of gets at those categories, describe the millennial move to spirituality rather than religion as what consumer capitalism does to religion. Um, an individual's identity under consumer capitalism is based on consumption patterns. Ultimately, this results in individual picking and choosing of which, quote, religious products, meditation, prayer, yoga, so on, they want to consume rather than belonging to an organized religion outright. Atheists may not be ready to accept religious texts about God and organized religion, but they may be amenable to this sort of fun, social, more amorphous godliness, especially if it's trendy. All this boils down to what the headline says. No one knows why atheists return to religion outside of, you know, the atheists themselves who might actually say uh, it has to do with um, something about God being revealed to them. But um Interesting compilation of research um, and a lot to sort of discuss and uh, talking points. Where, where, where were you guys with this? Potlucks. I mean, the atheists go back to church for potlucks, <laughs> for food. Whenever I meet somebody who's spiritual but not religious, I just think that they haven't had enough hard stuff happen in their life. <laughs> <laughs> and whenever I meet someone who's an atheist, I think, well, you're not that far from Christianity. I mean, just in that, like, you you're just doing death on your terms and you don't quite yet know like the goodness that is death on God's terms. But, um, but that, that, that seems like a jump you could make. But when I meet someone who's spiritual, but not religious, I'm like, maybe you should go to some AA meetings. (laughs) Like, (laughs) how's that working for you? Well, it's, it's, it's funny. We just, our guest this week, Stephanie Butnick, I actually talked about this for a while. We're talking, she was talking about Judaism today. Uh And she was saying that like, this is, you know, for a lot of younger Jews in New York, you, I mean, it's like synagogue Jews are pretty expensive and you wind up with, with, with this sort of appropriating spiritual practices and things. And, and she was talking about the challenges synagogues have for this. And we're saying, you know, we're saying churches do too, that, that this, I, I think there's something to that consumer capitalism one really, because one of the things we're talking about is that when you're really part of a religious tradition, you actually feel more like it chose you than you chose it. Yeah. So it's sort of like, it, it almost feels like a, 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 a gripping spiritual tradition almost can't be taken in a cafeteria consumer framework or it loses its mystery and power. Totally. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. I mean, it, it, it really is. Um, 
Yeah, that was, a, I think, you know, relation to what your interview with Campolo, Bart Campolo and uh, Adam Morton's wonderful piece about it. It's like, you just, it, you hear all these people that want um, God without religion and then, or God without the church. And then you come across someone who wants the church without God and you think to yourself where, that that that's a that's a huge that's harder for me to understand uh, yeah. than the other one uh as as you would say sarah like it would um i don't know i can't believe i'm citing bart campolo here <laughs> i do it every day man that's like a thing for me i'm reading his devotional yeah <laughs> yeah and the, the other thing i'm re- i've been reading this great book by thomas Hale. i think i've talked about before called patience with god yeah and he's a czech psychotherapist and catholic priest and he talks about how, for him, fundamentalism and atheism are flip sides of impatient faith. Mm. Uh, neither can be patient with God. And he talks about, uh, and the subtitle of the book is, is, is about, is, has Zacchaeus in the title, and he said he felt called to be a priest to those who are far off but would like to draw nearer, and that requires a posture of patience. So I think that, I mean, that's kind of thrown on my head. Also, so I was thinking about what you were saying about atheism and proximity to Christianity, which Halleck agrees with, but also Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, sort of talked about how, how God, the possibility, he's trying to explain modern atheism and godlessness in, a, in the modern world. Uh, one of the things he thinks is that the possibility of godlessness, if we take the incarnation seriously and the God is, who creates the world is not simply the omni-God, the omni, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, but is the one who allowed himself to be crucified, pushed outside the camp, then we shouldn't be surprised that God creates a world where godlessness is a real possibility. Because that's exactly what a theology, the cross picture of creation would look like, not one that's a glory story. Wow. So. Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. That is powerful. That's awesome, Scott. I wonder, that study where it says four religious people reject religion for every non-religious person who converts to it, um, I wonder if that's an accurate statistic. I, I mean, I wonder if people who are, you know, the deathbed conversions, are, are they actually being polled? <laughs> Right. <laughs> I, are they part of the data, or or it also culturally there's more cachet in uh, walking away from your faith than from um, gaining it or regaining it in some way. But certainly, once uh, you know your interview with uh, Mike McGargle, Scott, it reminds me of that too, where it's like a guy who comes back to faith but isn't willing to really talk about it in the same terms, or it, it he might not check the box on a census form. How does how do we how do we trust any of this kind of uh, uh, data? I don't know. Maybe I'm fake news. Yeah, maybe fake I'm just data. looking for a, a reason not to trust. It's alternative it. facts. These no, are alternative facts. I mean, I know what you mean. Like, I I would wonder that in the hospital sometimes because because deathbed conversions are so real and almost a normal part of dying, right? Because you're like, where is this headed? Um, and that's not something we have any data for. Like they don't walk around hospitals like, how's it going with Jesus? You know? Um, but I mean, you often as a chaplain get called into the room towards the end because people want to have that conversation with you. Or that, um, there, that some sort of shred of faith emerges that maybe it was there all along, but they weren't totally. willing to confess to or. Right. Right. Yeah, and sociologically, you when you're in a kind of post-Christendom, sort of post-Christian culture, or at least one that's heading that direction, then also, you I mean, there's not a dramatic rise in atheism when you look at the stats. There is a rise in the nuns or non-participation, but most of them are not atheists. It, right. the, the thing is, there's just not a cultural, in a lot of the country, there's not a cultural benefit to self-identifying as a Lutheran or a Methodist right. or an Episcopalian. Or a Mechan- right. like, so people that 
in a previous generation might not have had much of an active religious faith, but still check the box, aren't checking the box anymore. They're less pressured. to. So I think some of the stats just fall out because of changing social. Likewise, yeah. I think the people that become Christians in a context like that actually tend to be much, have a much more robust sense of faith because it's something they had to consciously think through and embrace yeah. as opposed to just passively kind of being sociologically totally. born into it. Yeah, like, yeah. A, like a Walker Percy type. Yeah. Yeah, I th- I just think all this points to the fact that we need to start doing polling in front of um, Lululemon stores. Fake polls, polls are fake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a So let's talk about that. Then this is a story that Sarah sent us that I thought was just uh, mind blowing, heart moving, heart warming, and just, I, I have no words for this. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable. It's something that's gone sort of viral, a bit of a feel good thing, but it's not really a feel good thing, uh, and it's gone viral for correct. I mean, for good reasons. It's it's this sort of you come across these people. We we come across several of them that you kind of want to just give a reward to or. Uh, give a hug to or something like that or just spend some time around like that. Remember the Undertaker guys who would bury the people that no one else would bury? Mm, yeah. yeah. Here we have Haley Branson Potts writing in the LA Times, writes about a man named Muhammad Zeke, who um is a foster father in LA County and who takes in basically at this point only terminally ill children. He's buried Ten children, some have died in his arms. He's this, he sort of takes in the sickest of the sick, uh, the, the only one. She says that um, one of uh, the DCFS uh, intake coordinator out there in, who finds placement for sick children in L.A. said, if anyone ever calls us and says, this kid needs to go home on hospice, there's only one name we think of. Mohammed Bazik. He's the only one who would take a child who would possibly not make it. Um, and she profiles Bazik. He's a quiet, devout, Libyan-born Muslim who lives in Azusa, uh, who is who's caring for a young a girl right now who's just turned six, who they're not allowed to really identify. But he just really just wants her to know she's not alone in this life. He says that, I know she can't hear, can't see because of her illness, but I always talk to her. I'm always holding her, playing with her, touching her. She has feelings. She has a soul. She's a human being. These kids, um, their sickness, it's a, it's a life sentence for them. And then she goes on to talk about how Bazik and his wife, who's since died, uh, got into the whole, um, it was really his, 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 his widow or his, um, sorry, not his widow, his, his wife, who it sounds like they split up before she died, but she was the one who was interested in being a foster parent. And her grandparents have been foster parents and she was inspired by them. And she opened their home as an emergency shelter for foster children who needed immediate placement uh, or who were placed in protective custody. And But it wasn't until the mid-1990s that this couple decided to specifically care for terminally ill children who had do not resuscitate orders because no one else would take them in. He says there was the boy with short gut syndrome who was admitted to the hospital 167 times in his eight-year life. He could never eat solid food, but the Baziks would sit with him at the dinner table with his own empty plate and spoon so he could sit with them as a family. I mean, this just makes you cry. Uh, uh, 
there was the girl with the same brain condition as Zeke's current foster daughter who lived for eight days after they brought her home. She was so tiny that when she died, a doll maker made an outfit for her funeral. Zeke carried her coffin in his hands like a shoebox. He says, the key is you have to love them like they're your own. I know they're sick. I know they're going to die. I do my best as a human being and leave the rest to God. Um, this girl that he's caring for now, she's hooked to feeding a medication tube at least 22 hours a day. She's lived as long as she has because of physique, according to the doctors. When she's not sick and in a good mood, she'll cry to be held. She's not verbal, but she can make her needs known. Her life is not complete suffering. She has moments where she's enjoying herself and she's pretty content. And it's all because of Muhammad. Mm. So this is this kind of... Uh, Love in the midst, in the face of death, that makes no sense, right? Um, and but yet is the most beautiful thing you've ever heard of, right? It is something that is so uh, fundamentally uh, unconditional because it's not concerned with results or behavior because it can't be. Right. It is uncoerced. It's 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 the closest we're going to find to kind of a example of unconditional love, I think, in uh, human beings, and it reminds me. Um, well, actually, I'd love to hear what you guys, before I tell you what it reminds me of, what, where does your mind, heart, soul go with a story like this? I keep thinking about, um, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just the dignity that he offers her. Um, I, there's an organization here in Houston I'm really passionate about uh, called Life Houston, and their only mission is to give baby formula to um, to poor impoverished parents because it's, it's so expensive and that, and they do it with, there's no lectures about breastfeeding and there's no, um, real qualifications they have to meet other than they have a baby that needs formula. Um, it's an incredible place, but I, I visited it this past week because I wanted to see them up close. So she's telling me everything that they do. And then she says, this is the woman, um, I think her, her name is Nicole who directs it. And she says to me, you know, we realize something we realized that, um, sorry, we realized that none of our clients have ever had baby showers. We took a poll and 90% of the mothers had never been given a baby shower. So these are women who didn't have anything to begin with and then they have a baby. And David, you've had a baby recently. You know how much stuff you need. And so she said, so every year we decided we're going to throw a baby shower for our clients. And I saw all these incredible pictures of these mothers who were so excited to show up and get these huge baskets of things that they needed. And I think, I think there, you know, there's something to be said for outreach. And then there's something, there's something to be said for loving people with a dignity that says to them, you are lovable the way that I am lovable. Um, and that we are beloved together. And I think that's, uh, I mean, that that's the gospel. I mean, that's, you know, um, that's the closest we get to the posture of Christ is, mm-hmm. is you know, that, that, that sort of Im- imputed love um, that we're mm-hmm. offered. When I read this, it made me think of this. This is my favorite passage in Frank Lake's clinical theology. He talks about the Syrophoenician woman who is, has a daughter that's afflicted and she goes to Jesus and they have this strange interaction where it, it, it almost seems like there's sarcasm going on. And he just says, the silence of Christ frustrated her urgent petitions and made her seek not his favors, but his face. It would be his face that held together the cleavages of her existence. Dog, he said, and dog she was, not a human feeling child at all. Then he had drawn her across an infinite distance by an invitation in his eyes to arrest in his heart the place where all souls are fed. 
She did not hang back. No lingering, introspective glances made her draw back, unresponsive to his steady look. She did not say, in tiresome apology, let my shame go where it doth deserve, guilty of dust and sin, or I cannot look on thee, or I will serve. She obeyed the indication in his eloquent eyes. Without hesitation, she did sit and eat. O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt, said Jesus. Her daughter was healed at that moment. She returned home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Being and well-being, life and sustenance, healing for herself and healing for her distant daughter, in her utter nothingness and leaving behind her self-rejection, she accepted all that Christ had to give in one splendid gesture of response to him. All that passed verbally to mark this infinite leap of faith was a quip of a few words. And I was just thinking about, in the, in the place where he said, you know, he just holds this blind and deaf girl. And he says, I know she can't hear, but I always talk to her. I'm always holding her, playing with her, touching her. She has feelings. She has a soul. She's a human being. And I uh, was just thinking of, of that, uh, the power of gracious presence mm-hmm. um, that Lake thinks is going on here in this series. And, and, and is what we all need, right? We all mm. yearn. For, for that kind of countenance. You know, so this is exactly, that is a great um, preface to what it reminded me of was that unbelievable story that I was out there and think back in 2012 from Emily Rapp and her husband. She described herself as a dragon mother. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about what it was like to be the mother to a terminally ill child, the biological mother here. And she wrote this piece that was sort of in, it was kind of in conversation a little bit with the Amy Chua, Chua uh, dra- uh, tiger mother stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is what she said. She said, parenting advice is by its nature future directed. I know. I read all the parenting magazines. During my pregnancy, I devoured every parenting guide I could have, I could find. My husband and I thought a lot about the questions they raised. Will breastfeeding enhance his brain function? Will music class improve his cognitive skills? Will the right preschool help him to get into the right college? I made lists. I planned and plotted and hoped. Future, future, future. But in light of this diagnosis, I've abandoned the future. And with it, visions of Ronan, that's her son, scoring a perfect SAT or sprinting across a stage with a Harvard diploma in his hand. We're not waiting for Ronan to make us proud. Mm. We don't expect future returns on our investment. We've chucked the graphs of developmental milestones and we avoid parenting magazines at the pediatrician's office. Ronan has given us a terrible freedom from expectations, a magical world where there are no goals, no prizes to win. No outcomes to monitor, discuss, compare. No law, essentially. We are dragon parents, fierce and loyal and loving as hell. Our experiences have taught us how to parent for the here and now, for the sake of parenting, for the humanity implicit in the act of itself, though this runs counter to traditional wisdom and advice. Again, this kind of love, which is unconcerned with results or behavior, at least not primarily, because it can't be. Right. It's present tense. It's not. It doesn't love you in order to make you into something. It loves you because it loves. I still, I still find it to be about as most visceral of uh, an analogy of what of what you said, Sarah, of Christ's love, the, the Syrophoenician woman, her daughter. I mean, it, that's uh, that's where real truth is to be found. I think. Amen to that. Yeah. And we'll talk to you all next week. Bye, friends. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on the podcast on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please cruise on over to iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. 
We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by David Peterson. It's edited and technically beautified by Dustin Coons. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.